Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, and today's topic is part one of a two-part series on the paradigm shift in our approach to interceptive treatment. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of performing a thorough diagnosis when a young pre-adolescent patient presents in the early mixed dentition. And then we'll talk about using that diagnosis to determine the etiology of the malocclusion. In part two next week, we'll go into detail regarding how to treat the etiology using comfortable and minimally invasive techniques. I should note that the content in this episode today actually expands upon the content you may be seeing in the article I wrote that will be published in the June edition of Orthotown magazine. I also want to say that the age-old debate about the need for and validity of phase one treatment to address the malocclusion of preadolescent patients in the early mixed dentition has been raging in our profession for over a hundred years. As Aldo Batiste said, quote, the problem of determining the proper time to institute orthodontic treatment is one of the most perplexing problems that confront the orthodontist. The history of orthodontics is marked by a lack of unanimity of opinion on this subject. That was in 1951, lending credence to the theory that all that is old is new again. In fact, the debate about treating patients with two phases has raged since the early 20th century. E.A. Bogue published a paper titled Orthodontia of the Deciduous Teeth in 1913, where he advocated using, quote, the primary teeth as instruments to enlarge the primary arches and thereby draw into position the underlying permanent teeth, end quote. So why have we made such little progress on the one-phase versus two-phase debate over the past century? It's my belief that it's a result of the profession taking a symptom-driven approach to the treatment of young patients. Further, changing to an etiology-driven approach is a paradigm shift that must occur in order to preserve the strength and credibility of our wonderful specialty. Thomas Kuhn, the American philosopher of science and historian, stated that science does not evolve gradually toward the truth. Instead, it has a paradigm that remains constant before going through a paradigm shift when current theories can't explain some phenomenon and someone proposes a new theory. He defined a paradigm as a universally recognizable scientific achievement that, for a time, provides model problems and solutions to a community of practitioners. He argued that the masses will continue to follow the paradigm and do what they think is true while refusing to admit that what they are doing does not work. Further, it takes someone to come along and show that the old approach is no longer valid to shift the paradigm. The current approach to the interceptive treatment of crowding in the early mixed dentition such as extracting teeth, space maintenance, observation, is a paradigm that has remained constant for decades and continues to be followed, even though it neglects to address the etiology of the malocclusion and oftentimes yields less than ideal results. As scientists and physicians of the oral cavity, it is incumbent upon us to break free from the existing symptom-based paradigm as it relates to the interceptive treatment of pre-adolescent patients. Further, we must shift the paradigm to one that focuses on diagnosing and proactively treating the etiology of the malocclusion. 
Let's start in our journey and begin our journey by examining the actual etiology of dental crowding, which is what we typically see in these younger patients. Dental crowding is defined as an inconsistency between tooth size and arch dimension. However, that simple definition says nothing about the etiology of the condition. In other words, is the crowding the result of teeth being too big for the dental arch? Or conversely, is the dental arch too small to accommodate the teeth? The data tell us that it is most often the latter. In 1964, Mills studied 230 males between the ages of 17 to 21 years old, and he found a significant association between crowding and arch width. He concluded that the etiology of crowding was most often narrow arches, as little variation exists between crown diameters of persons with and without malalignment. In 1981, McCown reported that arch width and crowding are strongly correlated and concluded that a narrow arch predisposes one to crowding of the teeth. In 1983, Howe, McNamara, and O'Connor published a study where they compared 50 patients with a mean age of 19.7 years old. Patients had gross dental crowding, these patients had gross dental crowding, and 54 patients with a mean age of 15.7 years old with little or no crowding. They found no significant differences in tooth sizes between the crowded and non-crowded groups, regardless of whether tooth size was compared individually or they used the mesiodistal sums of the teeth. However, significant differences were observed between the arch dimensions, including lingual arch width, buccal arch width, dental arch perimeter, and dental arch area of the crowded and non-crowded groups. This led them to conclude that subjects with dental crowding were more likely to have smaller dental arch measurements than subjects with little or no dental crowding, and that subjects with crowded dental arches could not be distinguished statistically from subjects with normal occlusions on the basis of tooth size. In 2018, Indriani and colleagues studied the predisposing factors of crowding in the mixed dentition period by looking at both tooth size and dental arch width. They concluded that the dimension of the jaw plays a more important role than the size of the teeth in the occurrence of dental crowding, a more important role. Further, they found the primary predisposing factors of crowding to be intercanine width, first primary intermolar width, and alveolar arch width. But really, this should come as no surprise that dental arch width is the primary etiological factor in dental crowding, right? I mean, after all, don't we see this every day in our practices? Think of the number of pre-adolescent patients who present to your practice with a narrow V-shaped arch, high vaulted palate, and anterior crowding. Before we explore viable solutions to this type of malocclusion, let's do a deeper dive into why deficient arch width is such a common occurrence today. We've known for quite some time that development of malocclusion, the development of malocclusion is impacted by more than just genetics. In an article published in 1928, A.C. Holtzman recognized the important role that the tongue and cheeks play in the development of normal arch width. He stated, quote, the normal action of the tongue and cheeks is in great measure responsible for the shape of the arch. When the mouth is closed, the tongue lies in the floor of the mouth and the force of the atmospheric pressure sucks the dorsum of the tongue against the hard palate. This flattens the roof of the mouth. As the teeth erupt, the pressure of the sides of the tongue pushes them outward until the force is equaled by the inward pressure of the lips and cheeks. Research on craniofacial growth and development published in the 1960s further demonstrated the interconnectivity of the structures of the craniofacial complex. 
1962, Melvin Moss introduced the functional matrix theory, which states that form follows function and as such, the functional demands determine the final shape of osseous structures in the head and neck. This has also been referred to as compensatory growth. In 1966, Enloe declared that growth of the facial region is linked to that of other structural components, and any alteration in one part of the craniofacial complex produces an equal alteration in another part, which in turn creates a functional imbalance. Clearly, the environmental forces acting on the dental arches as they develop play a significant role in the development of malocclusion. But how does that translate to the crowding that we see in front of us in our preadolescent patients? To answer that question, we need to gain an understanding of how modern-day malocclusions have become so prevalent. Many of us learned in our training that malocclusion has evolved because of interbreeding, whereby persons with big teeth, a person with, a big, with big teeth has a child with someone with small jaws, and the result is crowding. And while it's undeniable that dental crowding has worsened over the past few centuries, the data don't support this notion. In fact, skeletal remains show that malocclusions were relatively unusual before the 19th and 20th centuries. Even as recently as the 14th century, arches were broad. Crowding was rarely ever seen. Interestingly, fossil records show evolutionary trends over thousands of years that include decreases in the size of individual teeth, the number of teeth, and the size of the jaws. It beckons the question, if the jaws are getting smaller, teeth are getting smaller and less numerous, and crowding is getting more severe, what is going on? It is widely believed that diet has played a significant role in the development of malocclusion. The first malocclusions can be traced to approximately 12,000 years ago in the cultures of Southwest Asia and the Fertile Crescent in the Eastern Mediterranean, and coincided with the transition from hunting and gathering to growing food. However, malocclusions still remained relatively infrequent and mild in severity until approximately 300 years ago, when the Industrial Revolution brought about widespread industrial farming. For the first time, foods were processed, causing the human diet to be softer than it had ever been before. This resulted in what experts referred to as masticatory adaptation, whereby arch widths decreased and dental crowding became more prevalent, a problem that has only worsened since that time as our diet has continued to soften. Weston Price, a Canadian dentist in the early 20th century who founded the National Dental Association, which actually later became the research section of the American Dental Association, concluded that, quote, societies that replaced their traditional diet with modern processed foods suffered, suffered up to 10 times more cavities and higher incidence of crooked teeth and airway obstruction and impairment. End quote. As an aside, it is noteworthy that the relationship between airway and malocclusion was recognized in the early 1900s, as we touched on. So often today, we make it seem like this is a new phenomenon. We'll talk more about, much more about this uh, and the relationship between narrow arches and airway obstruction in this and in future podcasts. But how and why would a soft diet contribute to increased incidence and severity of malocclusion? Scottish doctor and dentist James Sim Wallace, often referred to as the father of preventative dentistry, reported on this in the early 1900s. He reported that soft diets prevented the development of the muscle fibers of the tongue, and he theorized that a weak tongue cannot, quote, drive the primary dentition into a spaced relationship with fully developed arches, which leads to more crowding of the permanent teeth, end quote. In other words, chewing hard foods for hours each day helps strengthen the tongue, 
which leads to wider arches, broader palates, and wider airways. Conversely, when the tongue weakens, transverse growth decreases, and the result is a high-arched V-shaped palate, a V-shaped mandibular and or maxillary arch, and increasing, an increase in mouth breathing and dental crowding. Furthermore, it's amazing how quickly this change occurs. In 1984, Corsini reported that, quote, the transition from predominantly good to predominantly bad occlusion repeatedly, repeatedly occurs within one to two generations time, weakening arguments that explain high malocclusion prevalence genetically, end quote. He also did not believe that consistent inbreeding, racial mixing, or genetic change accounted for this transition. So this begins to start what I call the vicious cycle. <clears throat> so we know that environmental factors play a role in the development of malocclusion, and our soft diets lead to weak tongues, narrow dental arches, and increased crowding. But is diet the only factor leading to narrow arches and more crowding? Harvold performed studies on rhesus monkeys in the late 70, 1970s and early 1980s, where he found that monkeys who had silicone stuffed deep into their nasal cavities for six months developed narrower dental arches and more vertical facial growth than monkeys without obstruction. He then extended the trial period to two years, and the results were even more profound. This led him to conclude that patients who are mouth breathers have more severe malocclusions, especially as it relates to transverse discrepancies and, you guessed it, dental crowding. While kids don't typically have silicone stuffed in their noses, although you never know, uh, many children do suffer from obstruction of the nasal passageways. Allergic rhinitis is the most common immune-mediated disorder in childhood, and it's estimated that allergic rhinitis affects up to 40% of children. It causes turbinate hypertrophy, which can lead to obstruction of the nasal passageways. In fact, a 2020 study of 544 children between the ages of 3 and 10 years old found that the prevalence of turbinate hypertrophy in children with allergic rhinitis was 81%. Therefore, we can assume approximately one out of every three of our pre-adolescent patients is experiencing some sort of nasal obstruction from turbinate hypertrophy. And that's without even considering additional upper airway obstruction, such as enlarged lymphoid tissue or a deviated septum. Therein lies the vicious cycle. According to a 2019 study in the Journal of Oral Science, a lack of transverse growth of the maxilla impedes the development of the nasal cavity, which in turn leads to nasal obstruction, impediment of airflow, and increased mouth breathing. When you open your mouth to breathe, you stretch the buccinators, which further restricts transverse growth and promotes vertical growth, leading to a narrow, high, vaulted palate, palate and insufficient space for the tongue. Incidentally, this is what Holtzman stated almost 100 years ago. These changes further reduce nasal space, leading to greater obstruction and impediment of airthrow through the nasal passageways. The nasal passageways and sinuses become underused and underdeveloped as a result, leading to increased mouth breathing and further restriction of transverse development. This lack of transverse development leads to insufficient space for the tongue, which lowers tongue posture and subsequently constricts the oropharyngeal airway as the tongue can move posterior, especially when the patient is lying in the supine position. It is the it's the functional adaptation and interconnectivity that was exactly described by Moss and Enlow many decades ago. So let's take an example of a patient. So here we have a patient who's just about to turn eight years old. She presents with a class one malocclusion, narrow V-shaped arches with a high vaulted palate and moderate crowding. 
For our audio listeners, I'm showing pictures of this patient. I will some, show some additional pictures, but we'll try to describe things as well as possible so you can appreciate it in audio. So when you hear about this patient or see this patient, what's the first thought that runs through your head? For the vast majority of us orthodontists, it's whether or not we're gonna to need to extract teeth, right? This mentality deeply ingrained within us incorrectly places the focus on the symptom, which is the crowding, instead of the etiology, which is the transverse discrepancy. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that most of us would take the following approach. We'd immediately send the patient for extraction of all C's. We'd then monitor the patient periodically until she's in the late mixed dentition. If she grows well and uh, you can think you can preserve enough arch length to accommodate the permanent teeth, you'd maybe insert space maintainers in the late mixed dentition in an effort to preserve the E-space and treat the case non-extraction. If instead she doesn't grow well and crowding becomes severe, you end up having to extract four premolars. But I ask you, did any of these solutions even begin to address the etiology? Or maybe we should first ask if that cursory diagnosis, which is what we typically do in these cases, even allowed us to determine the etiology in the first place. Do we even know what's going on or what's causing it? So what's the answer? To effectively diagnose the true etiology, we need to take a deeper look into her presenting condition. When we do, we're going to notice things like tired eyes, allergic shiners, Denny Morgan lines, and the allergic crease in the nose, all signs of atopy. And the chap lips, the chap gums, as I refer to that thick hyperplastic tissue and the maxillary anterior sextant that's caused by mouth breathing. Intraorally, we can see the chapped gums, the altered passive eruption, the plaque accumulation on the gingival margins, all which are signs of mouth breathing. It's that adherent plaque. And oftentimes you'll ask a parent, you'll say to the parent about having the, the, the kind of gook up on the, the, the um, where the, I'll say to the parent, where the white part of the tooth meets the pink part of the gums. And mom will be like, yeah, I get in there. I scrub that for her and I just can't get that stuff off. Well, that's because the mouth breathing has essentially caked it on and it's dried everything out. So it's basically plastered to the tooth and they can't get it off until it go, they go to get a professional cleaning at their dentist. We'll also notice the rolled-in molars with a steep curve of Wilson and the insufficient space for the tongue. In addition, because we took a CBCT image, we detected that she has mild to moderate obstruction of the nasal passageways secondary to, to mild turbinate hypertrophy. Under development of the right maxillary sinus, which is a possible sign that she's not breathing well through her nose, and large adenoid tonsils obstructing the nasopharynx and a posteriorly positioned tongue obstructing the oropharynx. But that's not all. If we really do our job as a diagnostician, we'll find out that she snores loudly, breathes through her mouth, is a restless sleeper who pushes the cover off, covers off and ends up at the end of her bed, is difficult to wake up in the morning, has trouble focusing in school, and is hyperactive with significant behavioral and sensory issues. Think of the difference in that and what we first said in our cursory diagnosis that we took. Think of the difference in what we have uncovered on this patient. That's our job. That's what we need to be doing. That's the paradigm shift. We so often look at these young kids that come in and we say, 
yeah, okay, you know, the little crowded, you know, the, can I, and the first thought is, can I fit all these teeth in? Can I maintain the space? Are they going to need extraction or not? That is a symptom-based analysis. We owe it to our patients and our profession to be better than that. With what I've just described, we've now performed a thorough diagnosis, and now, and only now, can we develop an etiology-based treatment plan. As an aside, the CE course on diagnosis and treatment that is on the DOC website explains uh, how to obtain this information reliably and quickly during your new patient exams. So if you go to the DOC website and click on courses, it's one of the uh, paid CE courses, and you can enroll. There's a whole series there which takes you through this conceptually and the implementation of it, which we'll talk about obviously uh, more in the next podcast. Uh, and that content uh, is great. And DOC being an ADA SERP recognized provider, uh, you will get ADA SERP recognized CE credit for those courses. So now that we have all this additional information, how do we determine the actual etiology of our crowding? Well, when we look at it, we can now figure out that it's narrow arches, which are likely exacerbated by mouth breathing. Why would we ever want to solve this with a tooth-based solution when the teeth have nothing to do with etiology? They're simply the symptom of everything else going on. Yet that's where we focus. So why in the world will our treatment plan have anything to do with space preservation or space maintenance or preserving arch length or the removal of tooth mass? Now, to be clear, this isn't a debate about extraction versus not extraction. It's about changing our mindset to one in which we proactively address the etiology of the crowding before we reactively address the symptom. And therein lies the paradigm shift that must occur. We owe it to our patients to address the origins of their malocclusion, and we owe it to ourselves and our profession to be more than just tooth straighteners. I promise that when you develop an etiology-driven approach instead of a symptom-driven approach, you will both achieve amazing treatment results and change more lives than you ever imagined possible. So in closing... In the next episode, we will present part two of this series in which I'll show you the most efficient and effective way to treat the etiology now that we know it and develop this patient's arches to address the transverse discrepancy, improve airway patency, and create space for the tongue and the erupting permanent teeth. And if you're an audio listener to our podcasts, that may be one episode where you also want to go ahead and watch the video because there will be a lot of pictures that are shown to help explain what was done and how effectively this technique and this approach can work. So that concludes this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the Doc community. You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things.